The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for taking the time to tune into the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm pleased to bring you another installment in our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is one that is more along the lines of an Indiana Jones-type adventure than any we've had since our initial uh, episode on the Bible. The story of the Dead Sea Scrolls is one that has fascinated scholars and laypeople alike since their initial discovery in the Qumran Caves along the Dead Sea Hills over 60 years ago. There is a mystique surrounding the odyssey of these rarefied documents that is almost as compelling as the secrets that they unlock. My own uh, personal interest in the scrolls go back to my graduate student days when I was enlisted in an effort to look for items of potential biblical antiquity in the Jordan Rift Valley, which is where the Dead Sea is located. The project, which I recounted in an earlier episode of this program, was uh, centered on a preliminary indication of buried caves in the uh, Qumran area. The project was funded not so much on the premise that biblical artifacts might be found, that's a long shot under even the best of circumstances, but rather that any evidence for unexplored caves in the Qumran was certainly worth a second look, given the prodigious archaeological yield of the initial and follow-up investigations. In other words, the region's archaeological potential was so high that any unexposed corner constituted a basis for legitimate archaeological exploration. We ended up demonstrating on geophysical grounds on that project anyway that the supposed caves were actually natural crevices too small for human entry, such that the initial assumptions of the search were effectively undermined. The project ended here without much fanfare. The numerous well-documented caves of Qumran, however, of course, tell another story. A new exhibit at the Discovery Center in Midtown Manhattan here in New York City has recently opened and brings together some of the rarest manuscripts that have been recently released for public viewing. That exhibit probably assembles the most comprehensive and authoritative information to date 
on the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the principal figures consulted on this exhibit, and a scholar whose work is almost synonymous with the historic significance of these documents, is with me today to update us on the recent status interpretations of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dr. Lawrence Schiffman is Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education and Professor of Judaic Studies at Yeshiva University. He's taught, he taught for 39 years at New York University, where he was the Edelman Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and Chair of the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies. He received his BA, MA, and PhD degrees, PhD degrees from the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University. He is a specialist in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Judaism in Late Antiquity, the History of Jewish Law, and Talmudic Literature. Dr. Schiffman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good to be here. Why don't we start with the serendipitous discovery, and this is a story, of course, that has made the rounds of, of the now internationally known documents. The story is that they were found in the Qumran area immediately west of the Dead Sea by a Bedouin boy in 1947. Can you sort of take it from there? Well, the usual version of the story is that the Bedouin boy was simply walking after his flocks and one of his uh, sheep, or actually usually they say it's a goat, went into the cave and then he was walking after the animal and he threw stones and he heard some noise inside, went in and found the caves, uh, went and found the scrolls which were wrapped, those particular scrolls wrapped in jars. People have to realize that most of the scrolls weren't wrapped in jars. But actually, we now know a little bit more about the story, because he was part of the tribe of Bedouin called the Tamira. And the whole rest of that tribe was involved, as you apparently were, in exploring caves to try and find scrolls or other, I shouldn't say scrolls, but artifacts. They were involved in, in all types of uh, sale of artifacts to antiquities dealers. So I think we probably have to figure that he and his friend were really looking for something in the cave, and they got very lucky and found it. And so what happened after that? Well, they uh, didn't really know what they had. And so they went to, uh, brought it back to their tribe and some elders or whatever sent them to go to two dealers. And one of these dealers is the famous Kondo who turned out to be the major dealer for all Dead Sea Scrolls, Khalil Iskandar, for really over a very long period of time. In fact, his son is even still involved with this. And, uh, that material was basically, the material was divided in half actually. And that material was eventually sold to Professor Elazar Sukenik, who was the founder of the Institute of Archaeology of the Hebrew University. And then the second uh, materials found their way into the hands of the Syrian Metropolitan, who eventually, in the United States, sold them to Yiga el-Yadin, who was uh, Professor Sukenik's son. And Yiga el-Yadin was one of Israel's most famous archaeologists, and he bought them for the State of Israel. So the first seven scrolls, that were discovered by the famous Bedouin boy, were uh, acquired by the state of Israel. And so this takes us to when? I mean, they were discovered in 47. Well, they were discovered in 47, and the process right. of acquisition actually took place during the period, the first group came into Israel during the period, literally right before the declaration of the state of Israel in 1948. And in fact, um, by the time of the uh, state's declaration, they had that first group of scrolls, and the second group was bought by Yadin in 1954. He was in the United States, and he saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal 
for scrolls available, biblical scrolls, and uh, he followed it up and ended up buying them for Israel. So for six years, they sort of just moved around? Well, between... what happened was Athanasius Samuel smuggled them out of what was essentially uh, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, Jordan. He smuggled them out, and after smuggling them out, he tried to sell them. He even showed them uh, at some point at the Library of Congress, and there were all kinds of attempts on his part to sell them, but he couldn't uh, succeed until the only logical buyer came along and bought them. In fact, uh, they tried to make believe that it wasn't Israel buying them because they thought that that might be a great source of embarrassment to him. I've always wondered if it was possible for him not to have known who the buyer right. was. Right. So what happened to the first group? They stayed with Yadin first? Well, all those scrolls, those scrolls, you see, actually you have to go back a little bit because the group of scrolls which were bought by Sukenik were published by him quite quickly. And the group that got to the Syrian metropolitan that Israel bought, they were published even before they got to Israel because the American schools of oriental research basically talked the metropolitan into publishing them early in the 50s. So none of these scrolls had anything to do with the uh, controversy over scrolls not being published. That controversy controlled, uh, concerned material that was found beginning in the 1950s by the Jordanians during that period, see, what happened was that the territory of Qumran during the War of Independence of Israel was part of that area conquered by Jordan, what we today generally call the West Bank. And that was conquered by Jordan in the war. It previously was part of mandatory Palestine. So it became Jordan. And in the period when it was Jordan, the Jordanians arranged to have a group of European scholars excavate Qumran, and at the same time as that was going on, they bought scrolls from Bedouin who kept on finding scrolls. Now, these Bedouin were actually employed by the excavators. So they would go for Monday through Friday, work on the excavation. When the excavators went back to Jerusalem for the weekend, then the Bedouin would run around finding scrolls. And then they would bring the scrolls and sell them to some of the same excavators who served as officials in the Jordanian Antiquities Department the next week. And they would keep doing this, and this is how they found the various caves which were found around Qumran, including K4, which contained fragments of close to 600 manuscripts. So you have two things going on. You have the first set of scrolls that actually went to the Israelis, and they published them kind of right, right away, according to what you're saying. Yeah. And then the Jordanians, at, at around the same time, or shortly thereafter in the early 50s, are actually undertaking archaeological excavations to look for more. Yeah, but they didn't find the scrolls in the excavations, just a few fragments. The Bedouin found uh -huh. them all the time on the weekends. But the archaeologists could prove they came from Qumran without any question because little scraps were left. Now, was there any, was there any connection at the time between the Israelis who actually published it and the folks who were doing the excavations, or were these things going on very separately in parallel? In well, it was angle? all going on uh, very separately in parallel, but I have to say a little bit less separately in parallel than people would have understood. Because, of course, Israelis could not answer Jordan. Uh, that's no question. But some of these people met at international conferences once in a while. And, uh, right. There were uh, here or there some correspondences through indirect sources. So it, I, I would say, though, that, that still, I, I think, to be honest, there was a group. What happened is the Jordanians appointed a publication team. And this publication team included a variety of people. Now, there was a, a minority that were doing everything they could to make sure that this material had no connection to Jews. 
and they would wanted to keep it the whole process Judenrein. There were some other people who didn't feel that way, but they basically, being in Jordan, etc., went along with this process. So Israelis and Jews had very little connection to what was going on with these scrolls. But except for the first set that was published, correct? Yeah, that's correct. For the ones with the, with the with the and remember the first set that was published, these are what you could call scrolls. You can roll them out, but the material that was found by the uh, Bedouin under Jordan were primarily texts that are in very broken state, usually five to ten percent of what was a manuscript in antiquity. So, how many scrolls had? Act, uh, how many scrolls are there in total? Well, point? if you count, let's say, all the fragmentary ones after the sorting, it's now we're up to number close to nine hundred. Some even say over nine hundred. And the first batch that was collected, the first batch that was published, how many of those were there? That was seven. In other words, the Israelis had seven scrolls. Right. And, and so those, now you have over 900. That's right. And so how long, and what was the trajectory of that excavation, publication? Well, what happened and, was this. The excavations took place over a couple of seasons and were never published, in fact. Later, this is in of, the 50s, right? Yep. Some of the, uh, of the, the archaeologists, main archaeologist was a great scholar, Roland DeVoe, a French priest, and he published an important volume as well as some articles and some minor reports, but the full excavation reports were never published until today. And by the way, that material has not been released to the general public because uh, some scholars who are essentially uh, continuators of his work are claiming that they're going to do it, and, and they're basically not releasing it to the public. And then, in terms of the scroll material that was brought in, what happened is the Bedouin sold it all the time through Kondo to the Archaeological Museum, what was then known as the Palestine Archaeological Museum in East Jerusalem under the Jordanians. Today it's known as the Rockefeller Museum. Now, that museum gathered in a room that they called the Scrollery all of this material that came in, and they appointed an international team made up of various Christian clergy mostly representatives of places that had uh, you know, centers in Jerusalem, like the American Schools of Oriental Research. They called right. it bleak. And they, these people went to work on the scrolls. They did a very good job sorting the manuscripts, and they began to publish the material. But in fact, partly because of issues of just how to handle that much data and lack of sufficient training and other reasons, they weren't really able to finish this job. They mattered, managed to get out something like a a quarter of what they were supposed to do before freezing completely. And once they sort of froze completely, that situation stayed for some time, and it uh, took place around the time of the 1967 war when Israel uh, conquered the area where the scrolls were kept and the whole area of East Jerusalem, but the Israelis didn't want to do anything about this. First of all, because the scholars claimed they were almost done. Second of all, they didn't want bad relations with these people and the various churches and organizations they represented. But eventually it took until 1989 when Israel realized that if they didn't step in, the scrolls would never be published. And at that point they appointed Emmanuel Tov of the Hebrew University as editor-in-chief, and he got a group of 60 scholars, truly international and interconfessional, and the scrolls were published within about 10 years after that. So you had sort of a steady influx during the 50s and 60s when the Bedouins were actually retrieving so, so, uh, scrolls, bringing them in. Well, the Qumran, material, yeah, the Qumran material is all from the 50s. When you hear right. about the 60s, what you're hearing about is caves that are from the period of the Bar Kokhba revolt of 132 to 5, 
where some of the uh, Jewish rebels or their families brought documents to caves where they hid from the Romans, or Masada, which was the last stand in the Jewish revolt of 66 to 73 CE. So uh, in, on that level, they speak about scrolls being discovered in the 60s, but not from Qumran, which is the site of, I guess, what we could say the capital Dead Sea Scrolls, the ones that are being exhibited in the Discovery uh, Times Square now. So your source materials are coming from a variety of places in the general region. Right? That's correct. Okay. So now what I'm hearing is that between 67 and, say, 1989, there was this huge hiatus. I would say that that's true. I myself, and on one visit to Jerusalem, actually went and met with a guy who was at that time running the uh, Antiquities Department. It's now called the Antiquities Authority, Israel Antiquities Authority, but it was then the Department of Antiquities of the State of Israel. And I asked him, well, what are they doing? And he says, oh, there's nobody here, nobody works, and nothing's really happening. And I, I think that that's, that's correct. And they were just sort of sitting there? Were they being well, protected? Were they being archived in, in They in were facilities? stored in the manner in which they began to be stored initially under Jordan. There are two stages to the Israelis changing that. After 67, they made some changes in the nature of the storage because they introduced refrigeration. They stopped allowing people smoking and all kinds of other things that used to be happening, which I guess one could speak as, of as sort of abuse of these ancient scrolls. So they stopped all that. That was basically, you could call it stage one. And then, beginning in the uh, late... 80s and into the 90s, they began an entire conservation program up to the highest standards after getting advice of all kinds of people like the Getty Museum and others. And that's what we have today, in which case it's not just a question of refrigeration and, and, and the humidity being maintained properly, but it's also an ongoing program of cleaning scrolls materials and making sure, you know, they used to use scotch tape and all kinds of other silly things they did, the way they took care of the material in the beginning. And so this is all being reversed, and everything's being brought back to the best possible state of uh, preservation. So this happened in the late 80s. All of a sudden, there was another surge in activity. And did it, has it gone on pretty much continuously since Yes, I then? would say it's gone on continuously, except that there have been shifts in what the scholars are doing, because the very same shift in activity regarding the scrolls is found in the scholarship of the scrolls, because the new generation had become senior enough to uh, say things about the scrolls that, again, attracted attention to the field. And at the same time as that was going on, there was the call to publish the remaining scrolls. And that was all at a time when the conservation and the preparation of, of, of the materials was being greatly improved. So tell us a little bit about the scrolls themselves. I mean, I was at the exhibit, <coughs> excuse me, and I saw that the writing was highly varied, that they clearly represented a fair amount of antiquity. It wasn't uniform. The writing was different. Tell us a little bit about the scrolls. Well, what we're dealing with here is a collection of, as we said, close to 900 different scrolls. And many of these scrolls were clearly brought from other locations to Qumran, where they were placed in a library by this sectarian group that most scholars identify with the Essenes. Now, the scrolls date in terms of their copying from sometime in the late 3rd century BCE through the early 1st century CE, except for the later materials, as we mentioned before, from Masada, which would get us to material from the 1st century, and then even some material from the 2nd century of our era, which is found among the Bar Kokhba caves. Now, all of these materials 
are of uh, a variety of genres. We have one-third of the material from Qumran, which is where we have the most of this, is biblical material. The second third of the Qumran material is what we call apocryphal literature, books about the Bible or like the Bible. And then the third third is the sectarian works of the people who gathered this material. And we generally call them either the Dead Sea sect or most scholars believe that they should be identified with the sect of the Essenes. So, uh, so the Essenes were uh, a major sect involved. There were also the Sadducees, right? Well, as far as we know, Josephus, there were three sectarian groups. The Pharisees, who were the forerunners of the Talmudic rabbis. This is like what became the normative type of Judaism, although it's not clear that it was in Second Temple times. Then you have the Sadducees, who were the priestly aristocracy. And then you have the Essenes, the sectarian group that Josephus mentions. So it could be that the sectarians are actually the Essenes. I've, I've personally argued that whether Essene or not, the sectarians have been highly influenced by the tradition of the Sadducee priests. Okay. And uh, basically, just to put this all in perspective, we're looking at between First, tem- uh, first Temple and Second Temple, between, say, the 6th century BCE and, of course, around 70 CE. Right. And that's where all of this activity is happening, correct? Yeah, except we have to be careful and realize that even though the biblical texts themselves, the compositions, are much older, the copies all fall into what we call the Second Temple period, which began in 540, but really the copies all fall from about, uh, say, 220 BCE on. So you have a pretty tight window here of a couple hundred years. Yeah, most yeah. Of this is happening. Okay. So um, now in terms of uh, how they got there, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, my belief is that these materials were collected by those who lived in the buildings at Qumran and served as a library of a religious sect that had separate, separated themselves from the mainstream community in the aftermath of the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt took place in 168 to 164, and by the time it sorted itself out, in 152 BCE, there was a group that was called the Hasmoneans, who were basically the Maccabees who had done the revolt against uh, the Seleucids in Syria. And this group actually took control of the priesthood. And this caused some Sadducee priests to go off. And in my view, they're the ones who formed the sect. Now, there are other scholars who don't agree with what I just said, but one way or another, it's quite common to assume that the sect came into being in the aftermath of the Maccabean revolt. Although there are others who believe that we should date the sect back to what I would call its forerunners, and push it back already to the time of, say, 180 BCE. So, uh, so there's a fair amount of controversy about this. Yeah, I think the people have a uh, mistaken notion. They think that there's like this thing called the consensus view of the scrolls, and then besides the consensus view of the scrolls, there are a bunch of, of, of other points of view that somehow everyone's trying to suppress. And this is really not true. There are a tremendous amount of issues on which scroll scholars are debating all the time, as it should be. And uh, on that note, we will have to take a break for a few seconds, and we will get back with Dr. Lawrence Fishman, uh, Schiffman, excuse me, sorry, and we will discuss the controversies that have arisen over the course of the uh, interpretation of the scrolls themselves and their circulation. We'll be back after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice.
voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back. This is Joe Shulden Ryan with Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. I'm speaking with Dr. Lawrence Schiffman about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the mystique, the controversies, and the actual uh, revived interpretations of those scrolls. The uh, entire topic of the scrolls, their contents, and what they pretend and what they say has been steeped in controversy. And Dr. Schiffman, if you would start us off with talking about or continue with talking about the controversy surrounding the scrolls, that would uh, start to point people into a direction where they can follow exactly what this history is all about. There's a whole group of scrolls that basically indicate that there was a sectarian group that in some way split off and physically separated itself from other Jews because of disagreements. Now, my own contention is that these are primarily disagreements about the running of the temple, for which reason I have come to the conclusion that this group came into being after some shifts that took place to the nature of the priesthood after the Maccabean Revolt. And that would mean that these shifts took place around 150 BCE. But there are very different views. And one of the reasons is that the big debate is, who is this sect? 
who are the group that left us this library. Now, because of this controversy, we have all kinds of difficulties in being certain as to the exact historical relevance of the material, but I think we should be aware that the vast majority of scholars think that this material was gathered by the Essenes, a group described by Josephus, and indeed Pliny the Elder describes a group of Essenes living on the shore of the Dead Sea, north of Angeti. Now, it's important to realize that the controversy we're talking about did not really start in 47 with the discovery of the scrolls. It started much earlier, and that is because of the fact that in 1911, a document was published that had been earlier discovered at the Cairo Geniza, the collection of manuscripts kept in the synagogue in Fustat, Old Cairo. And among these documents found there, also they were rather fragmentary, are two manuscripts of a document that was then called the Fragments of a Tzadokite Work, now called the Damascus Document. And this text is actually one that turned up at Qumran. So you have these medieval manuscripts of a Dead Sea Scroll being found in the late 19th century and published in the early 20th century, way before the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this stuff touched off the whole same debate. Some people said they were Christian. Some people said that they were written by Docissians, which is a type of Samaritan. Some people said that they looked Sadducee. Some people said they looked like the Pharisaic uh, rabbinic tradition. And then there were Karaites, the medieval Jewish literalist sect. So what ended up happening is that all these points of view were put together at that, were put forward at that point. And even though most of the points of view eventually went away, the controversy continued by certain views either being revived or also by new views being created. Now, the new views that were created, even after all of these manuscripts had been found in such close proximity to the Qumran center, the new views started to claim that Qumran had no relationship to the scrolls. This indeed is the view of Norman Gall, who believes that the scrolls are from Jerusalem libraries, and that Qumran, the settlement of Qumran, the buildings, have nothing to do with the, the manuscripts. Then we have... Well, so, so wait a second. So, so they're saying that there was a sect that actually came from Jerusalem with the scrolls in hand. Well, you know what, a sect. Somebody wanted to store their manuscripts and keep them for safekeeping, and so probably close to the destruction of the temple, they brought them to Qumran and they hid them there. Probably for political reasons. Well, not political, just because scrolls would be destroyed in the war or Absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. Right. right. That's the way okay. the theory operates. But now there are other theories like this. There's a, one person has a theory that Qumran was originally a fortress. Another one has a theory that it was originally a uh, kind of winter home for people from a colder climate. Then there are theories that it was a commercial center, uh, a library for producing books. Everybody's another theory. Now, most scholars don't accept these theories. They believe that Qumran was indeed the place of residence of a group of Jewish sectarians who were very, very pious and for whom purity was very important. And most scholars think that this is the group that gathered the scrolls. And as I said, most people will identify this with the Essenes, even though I myself have some question or believe that the definition of Essene must be greatly changed if this stems from the Essenes. Now, this controversy got very, very heated. Correct? Yes. Well, most of the heated controversy was caused by two things. The fact that the scrolls were being, as we say, hidden from the view of most scholars by the small minority group that was supposed to publish them and didn't. Now, that what was happened one. with that? How did that happen? Well, what happened was that the Jordanians appointed this group of scholars, and this group of scholars failed to publish the text. But instead of going out and trying to find help 
and let scholars who wanted to look at the manuscripts look at them. What they did instead was to keep it secret and not allow others to see the material. And this was supported initially by the Jordanians, but then the Israelis were kind of sucked in because of the fact that they were trying to preserve the status quo and not getting any fights with these Christian groups that backed these people. So as a result of it, the situation went on in which other scholars, including some people who grew old and died, simply never saw the scrolls. And that was what the big opposition was to, and it took a long time until finally the, this uh, monopoly, as it was called, was broken by a combination of uh, public relations and public demands, and also the fact that bootleg copies of the material became available. Okay, is it your thinking or feeling that there was some kind of a hidden agenda? Well, everybody uh, says that there was a hidden agenda, but now that the scrolls are out, you can see that there wasn't. In other words, we're now in a situation when if you go out and you take a look at the actual content of all of the scrolls, the so-called hidden stuff, if you want to call it that, there's anything you can figure out that's hidden. You can't find anything. You know, why would anybody today, let's put it this way, right, the Jewish groups, Christian groups, the state of Israel, the state of Jordan, there wasn't really any reason for anybody to keep this material uh, secret. Just in the end, there wasn't. Was it professional jealousy? Was, was I, I don't know if I call it jealousy. If you go through the whole thing, there are a lot of different reasons. There were people who uh, were alcoholics. There were people who died in the team. There were people who had no real interest in this when they found out what it was. There are all kinds of reasons why people didn't do their jobs. That's right. really the way I, I look at it. I don't think that it's, I don't believe there was a conspiracy. You know how many times I've been told that the Vatican hid the scrolls? And uh, the Vatican didn't hide any scrolls. They had nothing to do with this whole thing. So tell us about your own particular uh, personal confrontation with this situation of impersonation, etc. Oh, yes. Well, this is really a crazy story. I mean, you'd expect that this type of thing, you know, would, would never happen to a scholarly group, but I uh, got into a situation in which the son of a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, who apparently doesn't agree with me, to put it mildly, began a campaign against me. And in doing so, he was continuing a campaign that he had already waged about against some other Dead Sea Scrolls scholars and pertaining to Dead Sea Scrolls exhibits. He would write letters to the museums and do things like this and tried to stop someone from getting his Ph.D. did all kinds of things like this with this campaign. And he created all these blogs in which gave the appearance that there was a serious discussion online in which his point of view was, so, so to speak, either equal to or perhaps even superior to the view which was being put forward by one of these exhibits. And uh, then it happened that because... Uh, they found out that I was invited to give a certain lecture at the Jewish Museum in New York, decided that they would try and see to it that instead uh, their father could give this lecture. So the guy uh, began, and we know from some of the emails with the help of his mother, brother, and father, began a campaign in which I was besmirched in all kinds of ways, and that might have uh, at least been, let's say, unstoppable, because the rules for Internet and libel and all this kind of stuff, especially if you're a public figure, which I've appeared on television a lot, is, is quite, quite hard to prove that somebody is uh, really uh, acting libelously. So, but then uh, you might say I got lucky. He decided to impersonate me. So he started sending letters out in my name, one time 400 of them, emails, in which I admit to people like the president of New York University that I'm a plagiarist. Well... Wow. 
Yeah, he's sending these things out all over the place in my name, not his name. He can write whatever he wants. That's legal. He could he could slander me, but but he started doing it in my name. So what then happened was that after not knowing what to do for a while and uh, being told by one of my friends that you better do something before you really get into trouble, uh, it finally occurred to me uh, how I could pursue this, and I got the advice of an FBI agent with whom I had worked in investigating stolen Hebrew manuscripts some years before. It finally hit me, wait, why am I not calling her? And she put me into uh, contact with the person who handles these cases in the district attorney's office, and then he told me that if I'm willing to keep suffering with it, they can get more evidence. So I said, okay. So it went on for months, from August until March, I believe. And one morning in March, I got a call on my cell phone that uh, they had uh, arrested the guy. And uh, they, this was a case of Internet investigation. Many people don't understand that every email is saved and that with subpoena powers, you can find out anything that a person ever sent to anybody. And there was a trial, which the accused used as an opportunity to continue trying to besmirch me and other people. But anyhow, after the trial ended, he was convicted, sentenced to a uh, short period in jail, fines, etc. However, they appealed, and therefore right now we're awaiting a decision on the appeal. Amazing. Well, the and guy this is all uh, on behalf of his father, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's the guy's not. The guy hasn't really totally stopped. I mean, really? Like, yeah. No, he, he pub publishes. I mean, I'm sure it's, it, it may not be him. It may be under somebody else's name. But he's uh, getting some blogs onto internet. Let's step back and, and get back into the meat of the of the matter. What is the relevance of the scrolls themselves? And look at them from any perspective you wish to uh, to later, later Judaism and Christianity and 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 how do those situations and potential controversies get resolved? Well, let me explain that most of the controversies have to do with all kinds of questions other than what do the scrolls say? Because let's begin with the biblical Hebrew Bible scrolls. And we have to say, by the way, that despite some false news reports, there's no New Testament found in the Qumran collection. Right. Now, when you take a look at the Hebrew Bible material, you're getting an amazing education about how the Hebrew Bible looked <coughs> at the time of mostly 2nd and 1st centuries BCE. This means that we get a sense of the fact that the Bible was not totally standardized, that there are a lot of minor little differences in manuscripts, that there are even whole other dialects that some people have imposed on it, but that we can watch between the Qumran finds from this, like, basically two centuries BCE, to the first century Masada finds, to the second century finds from the period of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And here we actually trace the standardization, which is also discussed in rabbinic sources. Now, on the one hand, it helps us to understand the standardization that we find in those Jewish sources. On the other hand, when you read the New Testament, you see that sometimes materials in which they're quoting Hebrew Bible are quoting that material, what the Christians call the Old Testament, they're quoting that material sometimes according to slightly different textual traditions. And when we look at the scrolls, we can understand the phenomenon of what the scrolls, what the thing would have been like. On the other hand, I think there's also an emotional aspect. For a Jew to see Bibles from 2,000 years ago, which describe, and I'm purposely going to use the same analogy for Jews and Christians here, because I think it makes the point, that which describe the way the prophets are read in the synagogue, 
and they see those very same prophets as in the rotunda in the uh, Israel Museum at the Shrine of the Book, and you see the book of Isaiah, or if you see Psalm 121, from whence comes my help, my help comes from the Lord, at the exhibit in New York. So these are things that you're familiar with in your own rituals. And if a Christian right. sees the same book of Isaiah, the Christian sees the Isaiah that Jesus read, what the Jews call the Haftorah, the prophetic portion, in a synagogue. And they, this is described in the Gospels. And they see the thing right there, what the scroll would have looked like when it mentions that he opened the book and read. And, of course, your average person is thinking of a book, but you come here, you, you really see. And, again, the emotional connection, this is the same kind of book. This is because the, the history is right in front of you. And so whatever group you belong to, whatever your beliefs, and even if you're not a person of religion, but you realize that these are the traditions of Western civilization, and you're seeing the thing from 2,000 years ago, there's an unbelievable experience to that. And that's one of the things that you can get if you go to the museum at the Discovery Times Square, the exhibit there, and you see what's there. And by the way, I should just say that also you've got there material from the first temple period, all kinds of wonderful things on exhibit. But from the second temple period, you even have a stone from the Western Wall. And what's, what they've done there is trying to relate these scrolls to the society and religious ideas that surround it. So it gives it a real opportunity for a person to understand you know, how much these things really are rooted in that tradition. But there's another now more intellectual aspect, which is that what we really want to know is what happened in Judaism between the Hebrew Bible period and the rise of, effectively, on the one hand, the rabbinic approach to Judaism, which becomes the authoritative one, and on the other hand, Christianity. Because it's clear that these are the religions that basically cause our Western civilization to be what it is. And they're the religions which most listeners are going to be following. And when you want to understand the history of those forms of religion, you've got to be able to bridge that gap during the Hellenistic period from the Hebrew Bible to the later manifestations. And for that gap, there's nothing better than Dead Sea Scrolls, because previously we had history in terms of political and social history available in the books of Maccabees and the, book, and the works of Josephus. What we didn't have was this ability to get the ferment of ideas, like we were talking before about controversy, to get the ancient controversy. What were people arguing? Now, you could say, you know, like, big deal, people are arguing about, but wait a second until you see what they're arguing about. They're arguing about free will and good and evil. They're arguing about how to observe Jewish law, the Sabbath, the festivals. How do you do that? How are you supposed to pray? They're arguing over questions like the end of days. What kind of messianic figures can be expected? What will happen when, when this, this period comes? They're arguing about the nature of God. So the point I would make is that we, it's just unbelievable to see that 2,000 years ago, 2,200 years ago, people are undertaking really sophisticated discussions of really serious, important things in religion. So when you, when you still see a scroll and you stand over it, you have to realize that that's really what's going on in these texts. And that's the thing that I think is so thrilling about the scrolls on the one hand, but from an intellectual point of view, so crucial to the way we understand the development of our religious traditions. Yeah, I think one, one of the most striking elements of the exhibit is you can physically see as you go from scroll to scroll, you can see the changes in the orthography and the language and in the, in the shape of the letters. You can see all that evolution going on. So you're assuming that underneath that you can see the entire changing the evolution of thought. 
Yeah, I think that's what it is. You see, this is my point that so much scholarship was spent on discussing who it is and then all these controversies, and they don't bother to read the text, because to give you a small example where it's blatantly obvious, if we have a collection of Hebrew Bible manuscripts, the collection is of manuscripts of this, in, from the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, it's not going to tell me anything about Jeremiah and Isaiah directly, it's going to tell me about what Jeremiah and Isaiah looked like in that period, and that's that, that's what I'm reading it for. So in the same way, and it's not a sectarian thing, it's the Jeremiah and Isaiah of the whole Jewish people. So this is what I really want to know. And if I can know now to go to the other materials, if I can find out what people are thinking and debating about all these other questions, then I'm in really tremendous, tremendous shape, because what's going to happen is I'm really going to be learning about the nature of the religious traditions that underlie what became the dominant religions of Western civilization. Uh, would you say there's a message here for all religions, and how can you sort of manifest it? How do you pick it up in the well, scrolls I would say that the, and in the scholarship? Here's a yeah. funny fact. A lot of the controversy that goes on in modern times goes on because the scrolls themselves are loaded with controversy among different ancient Jews. And so there actually is a kind of a lesson, which is maybe sort of funny, which is uh, but the lesson of how important it is to avoid getting into these types of religious struggles that unfortunately typify life. And today I think we can see how significant it is to avoid a kind of jump between religious debate and even sectarianism and violent debate and sectarianism, because we know that among the ancient Jews, before you knew it after this period, you end up in the Roman period, when in the Roman period, the real issues become ones of violent revolt against Rome, and the whole situation shifts. So I think we can learn from this how important it is to make sure that the types of debates that we participate in will remain debates over religious ideas and not become violent uh, and, and, and uh, messianically rooted violence, which, of course, in our own society today, we have people whose uh, messianic views have become violent, unfortunately, and are affecting all of us. So that, I think that's an important lesson. But then, for Jews and Christians, it's a very particular lesson, and it's a lesson which the exhibits try to also tie to Islam in a not-so-successful way, but they, they try and that is the notion that the, uh, this is really our common religious tradition being exhibited. And I think the scrolls have had a very positive impact on Jews and Christians and their relationship. And it's, I think, in a funny sense, ironic, considering the extent to which the people who left us these scrolls were so radical, because they were. And yet, nonetheless, the scrolls have become a source very often for Jewish-Christian understanding. And you see that with the people who come to these types of exhibits and how they understand them and enjoy them. You see that with the press. And uh, I think for, for many of us, it's a very real experience of realizing the extent to which there are commonalities, which at least uh, in our type of society, we're able to understand the commonalities as being more significant than binding people together. And by the way, they're going to be having the Ten Commandments at the exhibit basically uh, around Christmas and Hanukkah, and everybody's going to be able to come there and see what is really uh, the oldest manuscript of the Ten Commandments that we have. You see, as a scholar, I'm more interested in the fact that that document combines the versions of the Ten Commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy, because, you know, they give different reasons for keeping the Sabbath. Exodus, because God created the world in seven days, 
and right. rested, and Deuteronomy, because we have a kind of society in which people should be equal and everybody should be given a chance to rest, and we should remember we were slaves in Egypt and treat other people with the dignity they deserve. So we have the divine message and the social message. It's all there in one in this example of the Ten Commandments. So it's a great example of how this brings many, many people together, and and despite the American political debate, it also brings together people who are complete secularists, because basically in our society, happily, I was going to jokingly say thank God, uh, we, all <laughs> believe, we all believe in the basic ethical and moral laws that are found in the Ten Commandments, and, and that being the case, right, uh, this is something, again, which represents our combined civilization. So I think that... Uh, that's what we, we, one of the things that we get is a byproduct of scrolls. You know, I, I've had the chance to visit almost every exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls that's happened in the world, actually, almost everywhere, other than two. I mean, I've been to maybe 20 of them. And this is something that never ceases to amaze me, how it brings people together. And I myself have worked with people that I otherwise maybe never would have had anything to do with. And, 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 and I think that's the case for all of us. And so the exhibit itself, how long is it going to continue? The exhibit is until uh, mid-April in New York, but if you miss it, you know, you can just go to Philadelphia. It'll be uh, an exhibit in Philadelphia afterwards. You see, I'm a fanatic. I'd travel to Philadelphia anytime to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's, is it going to tour elsewhere? Or is, We're or hoping that, that it will. You have to understand that the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority puts together exhibits with different groups that are different in many ways, as this one is different in many ways, especially because of all the first temple material is here. And uh, when they put them together, they go to a few places. Then it goes back, and they put another one together, and that one will go a few places. So this is, for example, not like the Toronto exhibit, not like the exhibit, say, that, that was in San Diego. But each one of them has a group of scrolls, yes. Sometimes even scrolls will repeat. But what's different all the time is the way it's framed and the, what, what we're trying to understand. In this exhibit, we're trying to make the point that the traditions of the Hebrew Bible and the first temple are what are really enshrined in the second temple. That's where they lead you through the first temple part of the exhibit and then down into a cave. And when you're in that cave, you're surrounded with artifacts and you have scrolls in the middle. And uh, this gives you the opportunity to really see the historical context of the scrolls as really building on the past. And that's a, a very important aspect of this particular exhibit. But they're all different. And on that, on that note, we're going to have to end. I want to express my gratitude to our special guest, Dr. Lawrence Schiffman of Yeshiva University. And a uh, very positive note that we ended on here. And we will be back a week from today when we're going to be discussing a somewhat related topic. We're going to be examining the question of curation and the crisis many archaeological repositories are facing because of a shortage of storage space. Uh, until then, thank you so much for listening. And remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.